Our second reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. Hear the word of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with a thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, these things, any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. On March 15th, the Ides of March, 11 weeks ago, we held a single combined service here at uh, HVPC. We allowed no more than 50 people to gather in our sanctuary, and we did that to comply with a request from government officials that there be no gatherings of more than 50 people to curb the spread of the COVID-19 virus. The following week, on March 22nd, we began to webcast our worship services and we restricted the number of people here in our sanctuary to 10. And again, we did this to comply with the request of government officials. In the weeks since, Governor Wolf has issued a stay-at-home order and we have continued to webcast and to broadcast our services increasing our cleaning and disinfecting procedures here in the building and allowing no more than 10 in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. All along, we have carefully followed the guidelines uh, issued by Governor Wolf. Even those, those guidelines explicitly exempt houses of worship. We also have been mindful of the recommendations made by the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our goal has been to respect the authority of those who govern us and to protect our people from undue risk during this epidemic. This past week, Governor Wolf signaled that gatherings of up to 25 people will be allowed in Montgomery County beginning June 5th. And so we will again respond to this change of direction and make appropriate plans. Two months ago, the session appointed an ad hoc committee to oversee the eventual reopening of our church. And one month ago, the session approved a skeleton plan for our return to normal. And on Tuesday, that ad hoc committee will meet again to iron out details and figure out how we will conduct worship given the new directions from Governor Wolf. Here at HVPC, we are of two minds about this quarantine. On one hand, some of us are champing at the bit to get out of the house and to get to church. I had a lovely conversation with Peg Taylor on Friday, and she can't wait to get back to the sanctuary. And on the other hand, some of us are concerned that easing quarantine restrictions will be dangerous and deadly. 
my inbox is full of advice that individuals have sent to me about which course of action would be the safest. Trust me, I've heard from both camps loud and clear. So stay tuned. June 7th, the first Sunday of June, would be the earliest possible date of any change. Between now and then, the session will meet and will make some decisions based upon what the governor is telling us, based upon the best information that we have from the CDC. In the meantime... Please know that I miss seeing all of you face to face. Be of good cheer. Do not be afraid. Be patient. Remember that God is still on his throne. The Revelation Bible study, which uh, meets on the first and the third Sundays of the month, has been studying uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. And last Sunday we hit upon this verse. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now, when Paul says we destroy, he means Paul and Timothy. That's who's sending this letter to the Corinthian church. But Paul also means we Christians who are doing the right Thing because Paul isn't just describing what he and Timothy do. He is, in fact, encouraging the Christians at Corinth to do the same thing that he's doing. Here's what Timothy and I do, he says to the Corinthian church. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And you should do the same. Now, we are used to the fact that the Word of God often tells us how we should act. The Word of God often tells us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. That's what we see in the Ten Commandments, for example. Don't lie. Honor your father and your mother. Don't steal. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those are instructions and laws and commandments about what we should do or not do. The law of Moses, in fact, contains 613 of those kinds of rules. The prophets who come after Moses, major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, and minor prophets like Joel and Amos, the prophets all point back to the law of Moses. They say, here's what the law says that we're supposed to be doing. Here's what we are doing. Hey, we better change so that there isn't any trouble. The Old Testament prophets were preachers who take the law of Moses and apply it to the circumstances of their day. So the Old Testament prophets continue to affirm what the law of Moses commands. And then Jesus does the same thing. He affirms the law of Moses And not only the law, but also the prophets who applied the law to particular situations in the life of Israel. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then we see in the familiar passages of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus actually increases and intensifies the demands of the law of Moses. Yes, the law of Jesus is harder to fulfill than the law of Moses. Moses says, don't kill anyone. 
But Jesus says, don't even be angry or call someone a fool. Moses says, don't commit adultery. But Jesus says, don't even look at someone with lust. Jesus takes the commands of the law of Moses, which are about external actions, which are about what we do with our bodies in the external world, and he makes them internal. Jesus is concerned about the condition of our hearts and the content of our thoughts. Because what's in our hearts and what's in our minds is what comes out in words and in actions in the world. I mean, if we can control our anger, we don't have to worry about murder because every murderer is also an angry person. If we can control our lust, we don't have to worry about adultery because every adulterer is a lustful person. Now, This move from external to internal, from external law of Moses to internal law of Jesus actually starts before Jesus was born. We already see this uh, tendency in the prophets. Already in the prophets we see that God wants uh, worship that's not just with the lips, but that is from the heart. We read in Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And in Ezekiel we read, And I will give them new hearts and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remember, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. God wants our hearts which is what's inside of us, our minds. He wants our minds and our thoughts and our emotions and our desires. And once God has our hearts, then out of those hearts, in the external world, our actions and our words will reflect God's glory. But notice that in both of these pronouncements from the word of God, it is God who does the work. It is God who changes us from the inside to get us to do what he wants on the outside. I will put my law within them, God says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, God says. Now sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that we are the ones who change ourselves. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that getting right with God is like, I don't know, fulfilling some New Year's resolution. Being a Christian, being born again, is not an act of our willpower. Rather, it is an act of God, an act to which we respond in faith. We give God all of the glory when our hearts are changed and when our thoughts are fixed on Him. We give God all the glory when we find, when we discover that we have the faith that we need to cling to Christ as the one who pays for and washes away our sins. Because here is the harsh reality, and some people won't want to hear this, but an unregenerated human being cannot get right with God. If God does not awaken our dead spirits... We can't come to him. In our natural states, we're enemies of God. In our natural states, we are spiritually dead, and dead people don't do anything. They're dead. But thanks be to God. The Father has chosen to wake up, to regenerate, to rejuvenate his children. And when we come awake spiritually, when we come to life spiritually, 
we come to Christ. Here's what Jesus says about that. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. First the Father gives, and then we come to Christ. Maybe you have heard the call of Christ, but haven't yet come to him. Maybe you've heard the call of Christ, but have not yet responded. Well, first of all, give thanks to God. Because if you've heard the call of Christ, God has given you the greatest gift possible. He's given you spiritual rejuvenation, spiritual life. If you hear the call of Christ, I encourage you to run to him. There really is no reason for delay. So in moving from the law of Moses and the preaching of the prophets to the teaching of Jesus, we see a movement from a demand for external obedience to the law of God to a call for internal alignment with the will of God. If our hearts and minds are on God's wavelength, then we really don't have to fret about external obedience. If we're tuned into God, if we have the mind of Christ, we will quite naturally live godly lives. And we will do things that please God and that bless the world. So let's talk about the content of our thinking. In Psalm 1, King David declares that the person who meditates upon the law of the Lord will be blessed, that he will prosper, that he will be like a fruitful tree planted by streams of water. In the final exhortation to the healthy and helpful church at Philippi, the Apostle Paul tells them to think about whatever is true. Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy. And he promises that if they think about those things, that the God of peace will be with them. And in Paul's rebuking letter to the wayward church at Corinth, he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Our thoughts matter. The content of our thoughts and the control of our thoughts are part of our religious duties. They're part of our relationship with God. So what are we thinking about these days? This past week, what have you been thinking about? What has been foremost in your mind since last we met? What ideas and images have you been meditating on coming back to again and again? The things that we think about determine the things that we do. Jonathan Edwards, the great American Puritan, said, The ideas and images in our minds are the invisible powers that constantly govern us. What thoughts have been governing you this past week? What thoughts have held you captive? We should be concerned about our thoughts in their positive and negative aspects. Starting with the negative, Jesus tells us that all sin begins in our thoughts. He says, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, 
malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person, Jesus says. If we want to live godly lives, righteous lives, God-honoring lives, then we will pay attention to what's going on in our thought life. Because out of those thoughts, our life grows. Evil thoughts make an evil life. Good thoughts make a good life. We guard our thoughts because our thoughts become our words. And we guard our words because our words become our actions. And we guard our actions because our actions become our habits. And we guard our habits because they become our character. And we guard our character because our character becomes our destiny. Whatever we think about, whatever we mull over, whatever we daydream about, whatever we obsess over, whatever we ruminate on, whatever we go back to in our mind again and again like a dog returning to a bone, those thoughts determine who we are and what becomes of us in this life. So in a negative way, if we want to avoid sin in our lives, we need to nip it in the bud while it's still just a thought. If we take control of our thoughts, if we take captive every thought, then we can obey Christ. But there's also a positive aspect to taking control of our thoughts. Not only do we turn away from what is dark and sinful, we also turn toward what is light and godly. Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul directs our attention toward good thoughts because if our minds are filled with good thoughts, there will be less room for evil. And if our minds are filled with noble thoughts, our lives will not only be godly, they will also be pleasant and joyful and happy and fruitful and contented. We simply live better. And are happier if our minds are directed to good and true and honorable things. What I am most mystified about is why it is that we are attracted to and get sucked into dark and negative thinking. There's something perverse in the human heart that attracts it to the very thing that they that we know will make us miserable. I mean, how often do we do things that make us unhappy? We know that they're going to make us unhappy, and we still do them anyway. How often do we think the very thoughts that make us miserable? We know those, th- those thoughts will drag us down in a while, but uh, we think them anyway. Why do we do that? Honestly, I don't know, and I don't think the Apostle Paul knew either because he talks about this perversity of the human heart that it, you know, sticks its finger into the light socket even though it knows it's going to get shocked. All we can say is that this perversity in the human heart is part of the fall. But here's the good news. The coming of Christ is the beginning of the end of the curse 
of the fall. The death and the resurrection of Jesus defeated the power of sin and death and began to push back the curse of the fall. Now that work is not yet complete. It won't be complete until Jesus returns. But we who are in Christ can fully expect our lives to be more blessed, less fallen as time goes by. And one of the ways that we move from the curse of the fall toward the blessings of paradise is to take captive our thoughts in obedience to Christ. This is something we can do. This is something we can keep pushing toward. Our lives will be sweeter. Our lives will be happier. We will be more alive than ever. We'll be more truly human. We'll be more productive if we keep our minds, eyes, and our thoughts on what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, we will blossom and flourish. We will be more pleased and satisfied with our lives, and we will bring honor and glory to God. Mind filled with thoughts of things which are excellent and praiseworthy, a mind like that is a foretaste of heaven. So how do we do this? How do we take captive every thought? How do we think on worthy things? How do we regulate what goes on in our minds? I think there are three elements in this fight for control of our minds. Number one, we control what we permit to enter our minds. A million things ask for entry into our mind on any given day. We don't have to say come in to all of them. We can pick and choose what we let in. Number two, we control what we permit to remain in our minds. Some things inadvertently get in our thoughts, like a virus infecting our thinking, like weeds infesting our garden, but we can get rid of those intruders. Just because they show up in our minds doesn't mean we have to give them room to grow. And number three, we control what we feed our minds. Our minds are perpetually hungry, and if we feed our minds on good things, they will flourish and be beautiful and strong. So let's take a look at these individually. Number one, we control what we permit to enter our minds. We live in a content-rich time. We are inundated by messages and images and movies and social media and print publications and videos and music. We have more stuff coming into our brain than ever in human history. And we need to be careful and guard what we let in. We need to stand at the gate of our ears and our eyes and say, yes, you can come in to things that are good, and no, you stay out to things that will harm us. What goes into our mind is not neutral. We cannot fill ourselves with garbage and not stink. We can't watch and read hate without becoming hateful. We cannot listen to cruelty without becoming cruel. This past week I've been reading The Magician's Nephew to uh, my daughter Mia at bedtime. <clears throat> this book is the first in the uh, Chronicle of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. And one of the chapters that we read was really dark and Creepy, And sure enough, Mia had a bad dream that night. And so the next night, she told me she didn't want to read this book anymore. 
which I thought was very wise of her. She was guarding her heart. We need to guard our minds and hearts and regulate what we let in. We are under no obligation to read or to view or to listen everything that is bombarding us every day out there demanding our attention. We don't have to. We can say no to it. We can choose the good and we can shun the evil. And when we do, then our hearts and our minds will be healthier and happier and more godly. Number two, we can control what we permit to remain in our minds. We should regulate what we let in, but we should also closely monitor what we allow to remain in our minds. Not everything in our minds is there by our own choice. Sometimes the devil puts thoughts into our minds. Sometimes our worldly flesh invents thoughts and ideas for us. And sometimes we simply bump into things in the world that are unhealthy, a book or a website that we would have never gone looking for. Just because something shows up in our mind doesn't mean that we have to leave it there. We can throw out the garbage. We can weed the garden of our hearts. No one intends for there to be weeds in their garden, but weeds show up. Some weed seeds are in the soil naturally, like evil thoughts that arise out of our fleshly nature. Some weed seeds float in on the air, like evil thoughts that the world is always bombarding us with. But just because an impure thought sprouts in our mind doesn't mean that we need to give it room or to let it flourish. If anything is out of harmony with the mind of Christ, we can rip it out by the roots. We can destroy it. We can spray it with spiritual herbicide and throw it into the fire. If we want a fruitful, productive garden, we have to kill the weeds. Number three, we control what we intentionally feed our minds. If our Minds are full of godly thoughts. There's little room left for evil, which is why the psalmist can say, Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law both day and night. This word meditate in Hebrew means to chew the cud, to mull over, to think about, to ruminate on. If we're thinking about the law of the Lord, uh, then we are constantly taking into ourselves the thoughts of God, the mind of Christ. And if our minds are filled with the thoughts of God, and if our mind is attuned to the mind of Christ, there will be no room for garbage, for weeds, or for anything hateful or harmful. David says of the person who meditates on God's word that he will be like a tree planted by streams of water. He will be healthy. He will be strong. He will be fruitful and resilient in times of drought and stress. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, and his final exhortation is this, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Meditate on these things. Mull these things over. Ruminate on them. Chew them and savor them the way a cow 
choose her cud. Why? Because when we do that, the God of peace will be with us. Okay, so you have heard the word of God this morning. What do you say we spend a little time now practicing what I have just preached? What do you say that we be not only hearers but also doers of his word this morning? For just a few minutes, we're going to spend some time in a guided Christian meditation. We are going to intentionally turn our thoughts away from things which are dark and twisted, which are fearful and anxious, that are hateful and cruel or helpless and hopeless. We're going to turn away from those things. And we are going to turn toward, like a flower turning toward the sun, things which are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. That's what we're going to do. Act of the mind. And in this meditation, as we spend time thinking about these things, we will be filled with the mind of Christ and we will honor God. Of course, he alone deserves our time and attention. So let us draw our hearts together now. Father God, we do thank you for this opportunity to step aside from the rush of the world this day and to separate this day out and make it holy, a Sabbath for you. We pray that you would turn our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our desires away from things which are contrary to you. We confess that we've been drawn to things this past week that are not good for us, that have simply agitated us or made us snappish or hateful or cruel. We pray this morning that your light would remove our darkness. Lord God, this morning we pray that you would fill our minds with what is true. Thank you for the many truths that we have received through our lives. Some of them from our parents when we were quite young. Some of them from trusted teachers along the way. Some of them from your eternal word. Some of them from the operation of our reason alone. Lord, we thank you for truth and we thank you that you are the truth, that you are the way, that you are the life. Lord God, we pray that you would fill our minds with things which are honorable. Lord, we ourselves have not always been honorable, but we have had the privilege of meeting some honorable people, people who've done the right things in hard circumstances, people who have served others rather than serving themselves. 
We pray that we would honor those people in our hearts. We pray that you would make us more honorable. Lord God, we pray that you would fill our mind with things which are just. Lord, we know that you are a God of justice, a God of fairness, a God of equity. We pray that we would love things that are right and that are true. We pray that we would honor that which is law-governed and law-bound. We pray that our hearts and our actions would always be just. Father God, we pray that you would fill our minds with thoughts of things which are pure, One day we will see you in the pureness of your beauty and the pureness of light. We live in a mixed world, corrupted and polluted. We see around us things which are somewhat pure, but we pray that you remind us of your perfect purity, made in creation, present in your own nature, We look forward to the day when we will have a restored creation, when this world will not be polluted. Lord, we pray this morning that you would fill our thoughts with things which are lovely, things that are beautiful, things that are pleasing to the eye and to the ear. Lord, may we cultivate these things and encourage them, not only in ourselves, but in others. May we make our homes and our neighborhoods more beautiful. May we make our speech more lovely. Father God, we pray that you would fill our thoughts with things that are commendable. Every once in a while we do encounter things and actions and words that strike us as so filled with goodness that we need to tell others about them. I pray that we would be quick to praise right action and beautiful deeds and pure attitudes. And I pray that we ourselves would live commendably. Father God, we recognize that all excellence has come from you, that all of the beauty and the purity and the truth and the loveliness of this world emanates from you. And we do honor you and praise you for these glories that we see around us. And we pray as well that you would whet our appetite for greater glory. Lord, may our lives be true and honorable. May they be just and pure. May they be lovely and commendable. We pray that for our own good, but we pray it also for your honor and glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Dan asked us in his sermon this morning, what thoughts have been governing you this past week? What thoughts have held you captive? I can say that my thoughts this past week have been of frustration. My family has been living on about half of our earnings for the past two months, ever since the shutdown. The unemployment office is impossible to get a hold of to see what's going on. It's been a challenge. But I have to sit there and think, I'm in Christ. I'm being held by him. We have a roof over our heads. We have food in our cabinets. And we have love between us. And that's because of God. It's not from us, but it's from our Heavenly Father who takes care of us. As James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows.